When you're lost in the darkness, look for the pod. Specifically, the Prestige TV podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're breaking down every new episode of HBO's The Last of Us. On Sunday nights, grab your battery and join Van Lathan and Charles Holmes for an instant reaction to the latest episode. Then head back to the QZ on Tuesdays for a deep dive with Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin. From character arcs to video game adaptation choices, story themes to needle drops, we'll parse every inch of this cordyceps-coated universe. Watch out for mouth tendrils and follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. They say that there are two types of men in Pensacola. Pilots and the men who keep them up in the air. And if you forget, they'll remind you. Some folks say that that's why they fly their jets so low. In fear. Just to keep us in our place. finished our first pass on our monkey minority report pitch it's rob mahoney hi rob it needs some punch-ups but i think we're almost there do you feel like we should try it out first as dinner theater before (laughs) we make a movie out of monkey minority report or i would love to see it i feel like the animal actors might get a little unruly under those circumstances but you got to workshop this stuff somewhere Oh, we're we doing actual, we're not doing people, guys in suits. It's, it's actual monkeys on a dinner theater. Well, I want a mixed cast. I want like the Muppet Christmas Carol version <laughs> of Monkey Minority Report, except actual monkeys instead of Muppets. And who's our one human character? Ooh. I mean, it's gotta be Tom, but, but then like, I bet I want to see monkey Tom. This is the dilemma. This, these are the dilemmas that monkey yeah. minority report puts you in. Great. Well, hopefully by the end of this uh, season of poker face, we will have cracked monkey minority report. We're here to talk about episode six of poker face exit stage death written by Chris Downey and directed by Ben Sinclair. Ben Sinclair is best known for high maintenance is not, does not really have like directing credits is, yeah. is a, uh, is a high maintenance guy. If you're a high maintenance person, you will know Ben Sinclair. Um, and then Chris Downey, who wrote this episode, has a wild CV. Um, I, I really recommend you reading the whole thing on IMDb. He's got like a really healthy, like multi-paragraph uh backstory on there, but he was a former criminal defense attorney turned TV writer and started out on like King of Queens before creating leverage for TNT. But most most pertinently, I think, uh, was a reporter covering crime in the government in the Gulf Coast of Florida. And that's how maybe we get that authenticity that we get for the uh, mm. 
the show within a show that we have in this episode <laughs> of Poker Face. Um, we have been just sort of assuming that you guys are watching Poker Face before you listen to us talk about it, but I have since uh, since starting at The Ringer realized that sometimes people just like to listen to us ramble without watching the show. They just so, jump in sometimes. So Rob, in case people aren't watching Poker Face and didn't watch episode six, Exit Stage Death, what happened on this episode of Poker Face? Well, first of all, watch Poker Face. Go watch it if you haven't. But if you're going to proceed blindly anyway, (laughs) in this episode, Ellen Barkin plays Kathleen, who is a seemingly desperate actress who turns to her former television co-star, Michael, played by the great Tim Meadows, for a one-night-only reunion on the stage for The Ghosts of Pensacola. Incredible show within a show concept. They reunite, they bicker constantly, and over the course of this episode, it's revealed that all of that is just staging. And what they're actually after isn't a chance to resurrect their careers, but to conveniently and defensively kill off Michael's wife, Ava, and pass it off as an accident while claiming her fortune for themselves. Did we miss anything in that setup, Joe? Where's Charlie working this week, Rob? (laughs) I mean, she's kind of important, but you know, what I'm walking us up to is the first 15 minutes pre-Charlie. This is is where Charlie finds herself. Yes, this is the pre-crime. Um... We have a, we got a couple emails this week because, as you know, this is a genre show. So you can email hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com if you want to talk to us about Poker Face. Rob is enthusiastically nodding. And since you can't see the Zoom call, you can only believe me and hear that heavy sigh and think, wow, Rob's really into this concept. So um, let's bring up a couple of things. Um, first of all, we got an email from listener Robert who said, who's a little confused about this idea of like why Charlie is being chased by Ron Perlman and Ron Perlman's, um, you know, right-hand man, Benjamin Bratt, enforcer. Uh, So Robert writes, I did have a question I wanted to see if you could discuss or answer. I'm confused why Charlie's being hunted by the big bad casino owner. It sounds like he caught her using her gift superpower. To win at casinos, then he's making her work as a waitress at his son's casino. I don't know why he has this leverage on her and wants to kill her. I would think that he wants to use her superpower to stop people from cheating, etc. I know she's on the run from him and Benjamin Bratt, but the reason for running is not making sense to me. Um, I feel like it's her involvement in his son's death, but what do you think, Rob Mahoney? That certainly could have a little something to do with it. But I mean, this certainly does feel like an episode 10 question. You know, I imagine Mm -hmm. we're going to get to the bottom of it one way or the other. But even aside from her involvement in his son's death, you know, maybe it's just kind of a classic crime story of Charlie knowing some things that he would rather she not know. And certainly her ability to read people and to tell who's lying and tell the truth could put him in some precarious positions and situations. I would imagine it's something to do with that in addition to, you know, murdering, or at least not murdering, but participating in some respect in the death of her son. I suppose the core question that Robert had here, is, which is why if you find out that someone has a superpower involving cheating and you own a string of casinos, do you not use this person for more than serving cocktails in your casino? And I think that's a valid question yes. uh, to be asking. So it seemed like in the first episode, Charlie made it seem like he was doing her a favor, like letting her live and letting her have this shitty job rather than like killing her for trying to run a con. Um, but yeah, that doesn't seem like like the casino owner is using her to her best of abilities here. Why so. was she not in the fishbowl from minute one? 
spying the cheaters in the casino, spying people exactly. up to no good. Like it's, I don't know, just, just wasted resources, classic mismanagement. I just have notes. I just have a few notes about this uh, casino in apparently Laughlin, Nevada. All right. Uh, we got an email from Mo who says, do you think that we'll do an episode where Charlie has a team with Curtis, Curtis is Benjamin Brad's character. All the old mysteries have an episode where enemies of our hero are forced to work together and admit quote-unquote, respect. Figure if Ryan and Natasha took this on, the scenario will be hilariously built, hoping it happens. So what do you think? A Curtis and uh, Charlie collab? Do you see it in the future, Rob? Love that for a season two arc. You yeah. Know? I, I, but I, we have to also say Brat Watch, zero appearances this week. Very tough. I'm really missing, missing Brat. Um, something that they said about this series as a whole we discussed this in our first episode, is this idea that, like, any of these, like, sort of intervening episodes after episode one could be shuffled in any order. So they film these episodes and, like, maybe they decide later, you know, where one goes or the other. I think we both agreed that last week's episode was really, really strong. You seem to really liked this episode, but um, I was, like, a little less high. I liked it, but a little less high than I was last week. So it might be that they're alternating, like strengthen, you know, weakness as they go through the season, something like that. Um, so it might be that Brat Watch, it's not like he shows up every three episodes. But I, yeah. yeah, we haven't seen him since the Heavy Metal Tour. So uh, I missed him. Charlie, make, it, make a mistake in your uh, <laughs> employment seeking so that we get, go to the ATM so that we can see Benjamin Brat, please. Too good at being off the grid at this point. <laughs> like make one cell phone call. That's all it takes. Um, Charlie's route so far, I did want to talk about this. So we started in Laughlin, Nevada, I guess. We went to Albuquerque. We go to Houston, Texas. Then there's the metal band tour, which I couldn't exactly nail down. There's the Mossy Oaks retirement home, which apparently there is one in Georgia, but I couldn't, like, they keep it, I think, intentionally vague. But this is Seneca Lake, New York. We're in sort of upstate New York um, at at uh, Dinner Theater. What do you think of this route that Charlie is taking through these here United States, Rob? You know, I feel like she is throwing them off the scent. You know, like yeah. if you're if you're tracking Charlie's whereabouts and trying to figure out the line that she's tracing to some actual destination, I think you're going to confound yourself. So she's doing a great job from that respect. I thought for a second that they might be in Chicago because she's wearing a t-shirt in this episode that it says Chicago yep. on it. Um, but then they say that Ava, Jamila Jamil's character, is the like uh, richest woman in Connecticut. So I really feel like they're in the sort of like New York, Connecticut area, unless she flew out to Chicago for Ghost of Pensacola, which uh, could be, could be. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to miss that show myself. Um, we got... An email from a listener, Jared, who says he asked ChatGPT, the AI, to write a plot synopsis for Monkey Minority Report. And yes. says, enjoy. The prompt he wrote was, write a film synopsis for the fictitious sequel to Minority Report, Monkey Minority Report, in which all the characters are played by monkeys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, I'm going to read this whole thing. Uh... In Monkey Minority Report, the advanced technology of pre-crime unit is threatened when a rogue group of monkeys takes over. The leader of this simian takeover, a cunning chimpanzee named Caesar, has discovered the existence of the unit's predictive abilities and is determined to use it for his own game. 
As the pre-crime unit falls into chaos, a lone officer, a gorilla named Detective John Anderton, must team up with a mischievous capuchin named Agatha to stop Caesar from his monkey min- and his monkey minions from altering the course of the future. With their intelligence and street smarts, John and Agatha navigate a world filled with swinging vines, flying bananas, and unexpected plot twists in a race against time to save the future and restore order to the pre-crime unit. Monkey Minority Report is a hilarious and action-packed adventure that will have you on the edge of your seat as you watch these clever primates use their wits and skills to outsmart each other and save the day. Rob, any notes? Why are people trying to put us out of a job? Like, we made our interest in this property very clear. And I have to say, look, I'm, gonna, I'm already going to walk back my stance that Tom Cruise should be the only human in this movie because Gorilla John Anderton is something I absolutely need to see. Uh-huh. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll shift. Like Neil McDonough can be the one human in the cast and the rest will be either CGI or actual monkeys. But otherwise, no notes. Like I think they even got the tone right. It is a delightful romp. A, z- a zaning. I think it's swinging vines and flying bananas and unexpected plot twists and a race against time is my favorite part of this whole thing. I also like that we're incorporating Planet of the Apes Yes. In here, right? Um, you know, so circus will be involved one way or another in this uh, in this particular project. All right, last but not least, we got an email from Matt that I really loved. It's quite long. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Matt sort of went through some of those like uh, f- filmmaking homages that we were trying to pull out uh, from yeah. what Ryan did in episode one and two, and um, noting a lot of the Tarantino stuff that's in ep one, but in ep two. That time-lapse opening that we were talking about, um, uh, Matt laid out some interesting points here. Uh, Matt wrote that this reminded him of Tony Scott in a behind-the-scenes for Domino. He talked about filming one or six frames per second to get that streak effect that mimics the effects of acid about one to two minutes in this uh, video link that Matt said over. And then also reminded me of Wong Kar Wai. I think the specific time-lapse related technique used is called step printing. It's where footage is shot at a lower frame rate, and then those frames are duplicated to play at 24 FPS. Step printing was also famously used in the opening of Reservoir Dogs. So there is some Tarantino in there, some Tony Scott. Wong Kar Wai is a really fun idea there, and I like can't believe that I didn't think of it because like... um Chunking Express, if you think about Chunking Express, great one car Y film. Of course. This idea of like <laughs> uh someone working at a food service counter and someone being obsessed with someone else, <laughs> and like all like that, that's it, that's all in the mix in Chunking Express. So um uh I love this idea that maybe this episode two of Poker Face was a Chunking Express uh homage. I don't know. Anything you want to say about that, Rob? Look, I'm all for any intentional or unintentional Wong Kar Wai homage. You know, we got this, we got everything everywhere all at once in the ether right now. Like, it's it's a great time to be alive as a Wong Kar Wai fan. Let me know when you want to do our In the Mood for Love podcast where we just break down every single minute of In the Mood for Love. Jesus Christ. I'm, so, I'm re- like, every episode will be one minute contained. Yeah. It's a familiar podcast conceit, but we're in it for a reason. Great. Steve Allman, our producer, said he's our, he's also in. Maybe we'll do noodle recipes while we're at it. Sounds great to me. All right. Um, but let's talk about this episode of television. <laughs> oh, that. Last, which, um, when we started this coverage of Poker Face, Rob, you said the guest star that you were most excited to see was Tim Meadows. So here you got... Tim Meadows, um, of course, SNL legend, um, the ladies' man himself, Tim Meadows. <laughs> what is your Tim Meadows connection? Was this appearance everything you were hoping for? You know, it really was. And it's he's an absolute king, and he is at the peak of his profession in one really crucial area. And that's in any over-the-top comedy, 
you need someone who's going to play it completely straight as they give the ridiculous backstory and exposition bits. And I challenge anyone out there to find someone who's better at doing that than Tim Meadows, to find like <laughs> the breakdown of how his wife got famous by starting an online brokerage for women called She Trade. And the way he delivers it is just is peak stuff. And you can look at Popstar, you look look at uh, Walk Hard and his performance in that movie. He's just so Me good girls. at this. Ex- oh, of course. Just so yeah. good at this exact lane. And I loved him in this. Um, I agree. Tim Meadows, perfect. No notes. 10 out of 10. Also, Ellen Barkin. Like, Ellen oh. Barkin, I feel like 100% understood the assignment of yep. what she was meant to do here. Uh, showed up in this, like, op- from the jump in this incredible white ensemble that he takes a dig at right away. But like, she's just like at at 11, the whole episode. Yes. Exactly where she needs to be. I love that this episode takes so many shots at actors, like fucking actors. Right. I really love when, when actors are forced to read those lines about how insufferable (laughs) actors are. But I think also, you know, something that, um, Tim Meadows' character says to her at some point is, um, you mi- you know, you missed your chance to, to like, play the great femme fatale or something like that. But that, of course, is something that Ellen Barkin did in spades in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, films like The Big Easy or Sea of Love, like, this was, like, something that she was doing. So it goes back to what we were talking about last week in terms of that idea of, like, metacasting with, oh, like, yeah. um, the the actors last week. This idea of putting Ellen Barkett in this role is just, like, chef's kiss perfect to me. Well, a perfect intersection, too, because not only has she played those roles, but she's a Tony Award-winning actress, too. And so putting her in this very... Not only are they mocking actors, but they're mocking the theater a lot, which... As someone who doesn't have a lot of the time, a lot of time for the theater in general, just conceptually, I I'm very into. I think that might be what oh. worked best in this episode for me is just like, let's get the Hamilton parody in there, <laughs> like let, let's get the incredible overwrought line deliveries from these monologues in the middle of this this play. I it was delicious to me. I I ate all of that stuff up. Okay, I do like the theater and in fact was a theater kid in high school. So like maybe this is where our friendship ends, but I'm with you. Like Ghost of Pensacola, this like overwrought Tennessee (laughs) Williams (laughs) by way of like Martin McDonough play was so, was every, like I hope they had so much fun writing every single line of dialogue for the Ghosts of Pensacola. And I hope that um, Ellen Barkin amidst the dry ice had just an incredible time delivering every single uh, monologue that she delivered in this. And of course, yes, the Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin yes. riff. The, it's all, about, all the about, about the Benjamin. Yes, 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 yes. Is tremendous. And like uh, Charlie putting in earbuds and white noise to drown it out. It was, was tremendous. I enjoy Hamilton, but maybe even more than my enjoyment of Hamilton is every single Hamilton... Uh, you know, knock and dig that we've gotten in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, you and I podcast about Fleischman is in trouble. That also had a Hamilton, uh, running Hamilton dig bit uh, through it. So, yeah. It's it's easy. It's an easy target. You know, it can be both a work of some kind of genius and a good punchline. But I have to say the, the theater bit that really got me in this episode was, and it was more and more every time, uh, Audrey Corsa plays like the third hand in this two hand. Yeah play effectively. I think she's she's really great. And I really hadn't been familiar with her work before. But she has this one monologue they have to keep returning to where her line delivery is like, summer felt like winter. 
felt like spring. And every time they got it, I was rolling. Give me more of that. Let's return to the theater in episode seven, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry that you don't like the theater because I feel like you missed your calling. <laughs> and I feel like you should do like um, a one-man show of The Glass Menagerie or something like that with that iconic accent that you just rolled out. Thank you. That reminds me of my like really like crowd-pleasing, everyone is always clam- asking me for it, impression of Nicole Kidman and Cold Mountain. <laughs> The people need your impression of Nicole Kidman and Cold Mountain. Where she goes, she goes, every fiber of my being longs for you to come back to Cold Mountain. How are Um, we so far off the rails already? We barely talked about this episode and we've gotten to Cold Mountain. I'm sorry, but every time Ellen Barkin like opened her mouth, I was like, she's just doing Nicole Kidman and Cold Mountain. That's all I hear here. This episode... Just like all the episodes before it, there are just like little digs and zings and jokes that work. And especially it's like front loaded with them. We start with, you want a gram with the shrine? And she walks into <laughs> Michael's house. And we see all the covers of People magazine and the Emmy and the like Critics' Choice Award or whatever. But like, you want a gram with the shrine? Like... Um, I am waiting for my opportunity to use that uh, <laughs> phrase. Do you have a shrine in your house, Rob? Can I, uh, and if you did, what would your shrine be to? I mean, I would just, I would start aping this one. And specifically the first piece I want is yeah. the People magazine cover with Tim Meadows, the reluctant sex symbol. That's the one <laughs> I want to start with. And then we're just going to build out the Tim Meadows shrine from there. Okay. The Meadows verse. Yes. Of course. The Meadows verse. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and then in building out the Meadowsverse, do you need a poster of Spooky and the Cop? Naturally. And then do you also need a poster of the Ghosts of Pensacola? <laughs> <laughs> I do, but I need it with the encore tape over it. I need the authentic on-the-day poster from the theater. I'm, I'm all about authenticity around here. I know this about you. And then also, do you need his white tank top from Mean Girls also? Just like sort of... <laughs> Put in a glass case on the shrine. I'm I'm dedicated to this now. I'm gonna get you like some cavassier. Like we're gonna make we're oh, gonna make this yes. meadow shrine work for you. Um, I love this. But the you want to grab with the shrine, the she trade joke that you already mentioned. Um <laughs> last time I saw you were oh, this time last year you were making insurance commercials with talking beavers. <laughs> like <laughs> incredible Geico joke. Like it's just um, again, they like they don't need to go as hard as they do on some of these poker face scripts. But oh yeah, here we are. My question for you as you're watching this, not like you know, again, as as the stated mission of the show is not to like surprise or shock you with the turn of events of the murder that you're seeing, but like, at what point did you cotton on to the fact that this was a performance within a performance within a performance that these two were in cahoots putting this together? Maybe I'm slow, but I honestly didn't. Okay. Um, And some of that, I think, is the way they shot their staging of their alibi, where we have a hot mic situation as they are setting up the elements for the murder in which they're kind of muttering under their breath these insults kind of vaguely directed at each other that, as we find out later, it's supposed to make it seem like they're having an argument. I found it plausible, given the setup, that they might just be like so self-absorbed, they're just kind of talking to themselves. And so until you get them staring longingly at each other in a dressing room, I was kind of on the hook. I, did, did you pick up on it faster? 
The only reason why is because this is essentially like <laughs> later on, they're accused of just lifting a plot from Spooky and the Cop, but this is also lifted directly from uh, a really good Agatha Christie murder, oh. which is Death on the Nile, which was made into a bad Kenneth Branagh film recently, um, but is one of the best film adaptations of Death on Nile is from like the 70s with Mia Farrow. So this idea that you have like a couple who have broken up He's married well. Mm. They bicker passionately in front of everyone, make it clear that they hate each other, but they're in cahoots to kill her and then have, you know, plausible, as you say, deniability and get, you know, grab the inheritance. Because we had a mention of prenup in this, right? Like, he's not going to get the money any other way. They have to kill her, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the plot of Death on the Nile, which I know is a favorite. Like, Ryan Johnson really likes that Agatha Christie. So, like, but... It's always really fun to watch people who, like, actually love each other fake fight. And so when you either rewatch this episode or you once you get the reveal and then we rewind a bit to Charlie's POV and you get to watch it from that perspective, like, that's that's fun. Fake fake fighting, uh, rife with sexual tension of this long time Spooky and the Cop couple. Actually, on the Spooky and the Cop beat, I just want to yes. say, maybe my favorite joke is when they meet the cop backstage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And he says, Spooky and the Cop is the reason he went to law enforcement. And then Timetto says, I hear that a lot. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard that is what he said. This is immediately following his wife's death. Right, right. Thank you. I can't I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And I just like would really like to know what percentage of the law enforcement in our in these here United States was were inspired by like um the medium <laughs> or <laughs> ghost whisperer. Like that's that's the analog here, right? Like Yeah, what is the funniest possible cop show to be inspired by? Oh, like I don't know. Monkey Minority Report? <laughs> <laughs> Steve Allman notes chips. That's a great poll. Chips yeah. is a good one. Yeah. Um, Car 54, where are you? Something like that. I don't know, man. It's uh, copaganda is everywhere. But spooky in the cop and just like, I don't know, the word A beloved spooky. show, you know? Yeah. Although you're taking shots at the writer's room saying they're just ripping off Agatha Christie for the plots yeah. of like season six episodes. But, you know, who among us when we get to season six? I mean, you're you're pulling from somewhere at that yeah, point. Yeah, and if you're gonna if you're gonna copy from someone, copy from Agatha Christie. That's the way to go. So only the best. Um also gotta talk about this um brief illiteracy joke. How familiar are you? <laughs> how familiar are you? I know you're not a theater guy, but how familiar no. are you with the uh, Leah Michelle illiteracy uh scandal? So Leah Michelle is the the perfect example of like you get on Twitter one day and everyone is talking about something that Leah Michelle is involved in and I'm like <laughs> I'm just gonna back away slowly I'm gonna be honest so I'm gonna what need you to take time? me I'm gonna need you to take me from the top okay that that's me with Lena Dunham like if I open Twitter and Lena Dunham's running I'm like it, today's a wash I'll, yep. I'll be back tomorrow all right Leah Michelle I mean Leah Michelle has done some like legit dicey stuff as reported by some of her co-stars on Glee. So like this is different, separate from that, mm. which is some rumors started. It's a joke mostly <laughs> that she can't read. And like, she definitely probably can, but like it just, the strength of this meme uh, <laughs> and the way in which 
There are so many TikTok videos just like underlying, and then to the point where people have asked Leah Michelle in interviews. And has she if, proven it? <laughs> I mean, define proof, but like if I were Leah Michelle's publicist, I'd be like, Leah, this is honestly the most inoffensive and hilarious yes. rumor about you. So I would just like run with it and say it's funny. Um, but she would be like, she got just really frosty about it, mm. as one might have maybe anyway. Point being, this is clearly a Leah Michelle literacy <laughs> And I'm here for it. I love that he was like, there's a section on my Wikipedia page. Just Under literacy. Um, I love And I love that. Like, okay, first of all, are you like me where if you go to someone's Wikipedia page, sometimes you just go directly to this scandals and controversy <laughs> section? Joe, you're messy. You're, you're here for it. If you open someone's page and like you look at the list of sections and controversy is one of them, mm. why would you go to like their childhood in like Deer Park, wherever, and and, and <laughs> instead go straight to controversy? This is the line between us. If I saw controversy, I would not click it. If I saw illiteracy, I absolutely would click it. <laughs> I was on the Wikipedia page, and I swear we're going to get back to Poker Face in a second, but I was on the Wikipedia page of the actor Tom Link, who was a series regular on Buffy Vampire Slayer in later seasons. A legend. And uh, under personal life, on Tom Link's Wikipedia page, under personal life, it just says Tom Link, or it either just says is gay or Tom Link is gay. <laughs> like, that's it, period. And, and I was like, absolutely iconic. It's it for personal life, is gay. I was like, Let's keep it simple. Sure, true, the basics. Um, All right, let's talk about all the little, like, Chekhov's hints that we got in this episode. What is your favorite? Is it Chekhov's nut allergy? Like, where are you with the with the little hints being dropped here? I mean, nut allergy might even be, like, too overt. Like, that one's obviously going to come back and there's going to be some kind of attempted nut murder. Uh, I think the, <laughs> the one that worked best for me was when, when it's revealed that their whole plot was ripped off from an episode of Spooky and the Cop. And really where they get sloppy is when they go off book and their whole, <laughs> their whole conversation about, like you know, uh, flipping the script and, like, continuing to try to basically murder people to cover up their crime. Like, that's where I started getting really into that conceit and that parallel and that, you know, construction of, like, clearly these actors are going to go completely off the rails when they don't have someone literally writing the exact things they have to do and say. I love that. Um, I love the setup for that off-book thing coming from... Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. Our third banana character saying she would really like a representative from the Clubfoot community to be involved <laughs> in the production. And then when she has her script and uh, Ellen Barkin's like, do you need a representative from the off-book community here? Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, here for all the millennial roasting, you know? Like, please roast us poker face, feed us peanuts, drop us <laughs> through a trap door. I want it. It, uh, we get a, I think we get another like boomer, like the generation wars continue on Poker Face. They do. 
This might be, okay, because I, like Charlie, am a, am, a, am a cusper, this might be one of those things where you're like, if you are a cusper, you're kind of just gently amused by the generational mm. wars because you don't feel personally attacked. And if I choose to claim a generation, I like to claim Gen X just because I choose to. It's a and smart like, move. Gen X is often left out of the generational <laughs> wars, and so you can just be like... All right, here come the like Gen Z millennial boomer snide remarks and just like ignore, please continue to ignore Gen X. <laughs> I so appreciate it. Um, there's also Chekhov's heart medication. Certainly. That's also a, a key factor here. Um, kind of twisted too. Like the idea of murdering your wife because she so cares about you yeah. that she would leap to your defense to get you your heart medication in a in a critical moment. I mean, this is this is heartless stuff. This is brutal. This is I mean, and that's like a fun flip side of what we see again in this episode that we often see from Charlie is like one of the main reasons she gets involved in this is because the stagehand Phil who is like feeling guilty and responsible because of her affection for him, she's sort of questioning what all happened here. It reminds me a lot of like Marge. I mean, he's not arrested for this or anything like that, but there's just sort of this implication that it's his fault because also he had booze in his thermos, whomst among us at Seneca Lake Dinner Theater would not. Um, but, uh, you know, she's trying to make him feel less guilty, sort of similarly the way that she was protective of Marge in episode two. So that constant, the way that Charlie has a soft spot for humanity. So I like the way that you're talking about like, like, that was weaponized against Ava, her tenderness um, in this episode. Yeah, I mean, she really is saving him explicitly from guilt. There's some lines in the episode that basically Phil slash Bill uh, is not being charged with any kind of crime. He's not being held responsible in that way. It's just like, this guy's gonna, this is gonna hang over him for the rest of his life when all Charlie wants, as she makes clear, is like, I just want to bullshit with you out by the dumpsters and rank Christopher Nolan movies. You know, like, like we could be doing that at right this second. Should we be doing that right this second, Rom? <laughs> Do you want to rank Christopher Nolan movies? Uh, yeah, Dark Knight, Prestige, Memento, Inception, Dunkirk. Those are the five. Those are the five. Is that the order? I think it's Prestige, Dark Knight. I love it. I love this. I couldn't get there, but I love it. Uh... Inception, Memento, Dunkirk. Yeah. I'm into it. Okay. I, I could have seen you being like a fringe interstellar head, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're on this side of the line. No, I mean, I care about love and crying and like <laughs> black holes, but there we go. Um, also, follow-up uh, film, film ranking question. The top three most truthful performances that Charlie <laughs> mentions in this episode are... Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse, Jennifer Jason Leigh in Single White Female, and Christian Slater in True Romance. Um, I would have gone for Patricia Arquette in True Romance Mm. if it were me, but that's okay. Um, But not Sam Elliott in Roadhouse. (laughs) That's a a pretty damn truthful performance, if you ask me. Isn't that a mustache-less Sam Elliott in that film? I think it is. In my mind's eye, he always has it. So I honestly couldn't tell you. No mustache in that. I'm gonna look it up. But um, here's my question: Is there anyone missing from this list? The most truthful, uh, you know. I mean, I feel like we can do better than Jennifer Jason Lee. No. (gasps) Wow. I mean, Um, uh, no, 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 no shots. (laughs) (laughs) But single white female would not have made the cut for me. 
Yeah, no mustache, just a general scruff. Mm. He's scruffy, but there's no mustache. But I will say the hair in Roadhouse on Incredible. Sam is magnificent. Incredible. He and Swayze are like competing for who has the better blowout in that uh, film. Um, most, tr- I mean, like, honestly, because of Single White Female, that makes me think of Bridget Fonda. And when I think of Bridget Fonda, um, I think of the <laughs> incredible American remake of La Femme Nikita, Point of No Return, <laughs> a film that I watched inexplicably several times when I was a child. So I'm going to add that to the list. It's got fans, you know, I've seen The Hive out there. For Point of No Return? <laughs> no, for, for the, the La Femme Nikita <laughs> remake, not for Point of No Return. Um. All right, what else do you want to say about this episode? Well, I do love, you know, just to kind of broaden out as far as the the truth in acting. Like using that as staging for this episode is really smart and I think takes us to some pretty interesting places. And in particular, the idea that like Charlie is basically trying to read the truth in these performances, which are already layered within other performances, which are being staged within this theater, which are being set up as a potential alibi. I mean, it does kind of reiterate that you know, even though Charlie can tell when people are lying, even though she has all of this, these detection skills, this, this uh, preternatural sense but sub-superpower ability to tell when people are lying, if you can't tell why people are lying, it doesn't mean anything. You're not, you, don't, you don't really know what's happening at all. And to that, to that effect, in this episode, she does something she's already done a couple times, which is accidentally confess everything she knows to one of the criminals. To the killer! Again! Charlie! It's, it's tough, but she thinks she's telling the victim. You know, you can see how she got there. I, I like, every time she does it, I'm like, Charlie, can you workshop this theory with, like, someone who's not so intimately involved in the murder? Like, can you and Phil talk about it? Uh, also, in my notes here, I have written... The old dry ice in the <laughs> the old dry the ice rod do- and the trap door move that classic of the theater. Um, it also, I mean this this episode also reminded me a lot of like one of my favorite um, tropes, which is like backstage hijinks. Um, there is a great play slash film noises off, which is just like all backstage hijinks all the time of like anything that can go wrong will go wrong. The fact that like Charlie finds her way on stage after having like inserted herself into the refrigerator and out, out the window and all this sort of stuff is like um, classics of that genre. But like to add that to add that twist to an Agatha Christie murder. And then like, again, as we talked about at the beginning of the season, like, to sit in a writer's room and have fun and be like, should we set one of these in dinner theater in Seneca Lake, New York? Should that be one of the settings for our episode? Like, I don't know. I would encourage more people to write uh, to hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com their ideal setting and premise for a Poker Face episode. Get us your um, spec scripts immediately. Yeah, we'll steal all of your ideas and go straight to Hollywood with it. But, um, but... I did not miss Rob saying that this was a sub superpower and this uh, this battle will continue. Please also Hobbits and Dragons at gmail.com if you believe that, that Charlie is a super hero in this show. Um but yeah, I mean like the the limitations of Charlie's sub superpower, <laughs> preternatural ability, um, complicated by these the fact that she's dealing with professional actors. Yes. Of, of such caliber as uh, apparently Emmy Award winning turn on Spooky and the Cop. 
Is that a daytime what? Emmy, do we think? Like, it's got to be. It did not seem super well received in, <laughs> in the broader well, context. Several covers of People magazine, you know what I mean? So. Certainly popular. You know, popular among a certain subset of the population, but... Unlikely to win an, an Emmy, yeah. Okay. I, I did love what you described in terms of Charlie having to maneuver through the refrigerator, through the windows, like just creating this artifice of these sight lines that she cannot cross while also still trying to mitigate this crime. And it hammered home something that's become really clear for me over these last two episodes, which is this show is operating at its highest frequency for me when it is total farce with some dark edges. And if we can hit that zone repeatedly, I think I'm going to be a very happy consumer. So you're saying like when the bedpans come out, yes, that's when you're all in. When Charlie is slapping the checks mix out of people's hands <laughs> and saying she's going to return to the spirit world of, of Pensacola, that's where we need to be. Okay. Last but not least, I would like to say that if famed, terrifying New York Times theater critic Frank Rich <laughs> were to ever deem anything I ever did effective, just quote unquote effective, yes, I too would chase that for the rest of my life. So uh, that's how I feel about that. The pull quote being effective was the most scathing criticism of the theater community. <laughs> and I'm here for it again. And will be always. Um, all right. Anything else about this episode of Poker Face? I think we're, we're narrowing in on the uncanny zone of social media playing a role in these episodes. Yes. Kathleen is actively driven by the fact that she's trending on Twitter. Yes. And so we, we are past motif. I think... There's going to have to be some kind of through line here because someone is on Twitter or YouTube or Instagram basically every episode. Every episode. I wrote, yeah, I wrote that down as well. It's really interesting. I want to like sort of put that, maybe for next week, I'll put down like all the instances and, and what they're doing here. But like, I guess it anchors us in time. It's that conversation about like uh, this show feeling like a throwback and feeling somewhat out of time to a certain degree. I mean, like, you know hokey dinner theater, Tennessee Williams-esque dinner theater in, in upstate New York. That could happen anytime. But this idea of, like, we're trending on Twitter. We got to do another show. <laughs> Bleak. <laughs> we got to come back around. Um, <clears throat> all right. Well, I think that does it for us this week. Again, um, for this superhero show, you can email us, hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. Um, your poker face pitches. <laughs> Your ranking of Christopher Nolan movies, your most truthful film performances, your desire for us to do a podcast about every single minute of In the Mood for Love, whatever yes. it is. Your contributions to my Meadows verse shrine that I'm currently building. Yes. Please, yes. Send, and send, I'll give you my address. Just send me any props you have. <laughs> any Tim Meadows ephemera you might have. We got we to gotta put this all together. We've just got a couple more episodes left of the season. It, it flew by pretty quickly. Um, and thanks, as always, to uh, to a man deserving of his own shrine. One Stephen Allman for his production work on this episode. And we'll see you next week.